What does the word intentional mean for you? It means instead of just going for it and hoping for the best, actually having a plan. Welcome to the Intentional Growth Podcast, the show that teaches you how to grow the value of a company with an end in mind. Host Ryan Tansom interviews top business leaders, authors, entrepreneurs, and other professionals who share their experience and expertise about buying, growing, and selling companies. Oh man, do we have a fun episode in store for you today. I'm super excited that you're tuning back in. I appreciate it. Uh, A couple updates is again, shows on YouTube, go check it out. And we have an intentional growth financial assessment that is very applicable to everybody, but also specifically about today. And the financial assessment is 22 questions. You go in there, you take these questions. You don't have to get out your financials. And your goal is to compare what you're doing to what best in class looks like about essentially running your company like a private equity firm and seeing your company like an asset where you can see your future growth and your strategies, tie it to the cash flow that is today and the impact on your cash flow and the future value of the business and your distributions and what are all the trade-offs so you can truly see the future value of the company and your business as an asset in three-dimensional which is why it relates today is because, I mean, I can't tell you how much fun I had on today's uh, interview because I interviewed Dr. Craig Everett and Dr. Craig Everett, I'm just going to read his bio because it's so awesome. And then I'm going to tell you why I am so excited about this episode. So Dr. Craig Everett is a finance professor at Pepperdine Business School, and he is a, the director of the Pepperdine Private Capital Markets Project. And he's the executive director of the Pepperdine Most Fundable Companies Competition. His teaching and research interests include entrepreneurial finance, private capital markets, and entertainment finance. Dr. Everett holds a PhD in finance from Purdue, an MBA from George Mason University, and a BA in quantitative economics from Tufts University. Dr. Everett is the author of the children's financial literacy thriller, Toby Gold and the Secret Fortune, which incorporates such financial topics as savings, investing, banking, entrepreneurship, interest rates, return on investment, and net worth. If I would have read that as a kid, I would probably not be doing this podcast. And uh, he's he's the member of the Beta Gamma Sigma Honor Society, Financial Executives International, and the National Association of Corporate Directors. Dr. Everett and his research have been featured in national financial media outlets such as the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, Fox Business, Business Week, and CNBC. Dr. Everett is a frequent speaker at financial conferences and events. I gave you that whole bio because I had this out of body experience of talking with, and actually he liked to be called Craig. He's, he's like stripped the doctor out of it. I had an amazing conversation with Craig and I had an out of body experience because I actually knew what he was talking about. And my goal is to be able to have you listening in, understand the concepts we're talking about, understanding like how to see your company as an asset, how to understand the, the cost of your capital, and how what what actually consists of the cost of capital? Where does it come from? And how to judge whether your company is growing or declining by understanding that cost of capital? And even in the first ten minutes, Craig just breaks it down and just hits us with a common sense bomb. And then we unpack all the technical details behind it. And my hope for you is that my journey of understanding this is going to benefit you that we're breaking it down in ways that make sense so you can take action on it. And we talk about, you know, this just multiples, what's going on in the market, how to assess the different risks of a company, even if it's in the same industry, just really trying to demystify 
where's the where's the valuation metrics coming from and then what can you do about it so you can focus on growing the value of your business by looking at the risk of your cash flow as well as synthesizing it with the third parties investors who are going to need a rate of return if they were to buy your company and what are their expected rates of return based on the business that you've built in the industry that you're in and the path that you're going towards so that's a lot being said, but I really hope you enjoy this because I wish I would have had this conversation way over a decade ago to level up my understanding of how valuations work, how multiples work, and how the different investors are looking at a rate of return based on how they're deploying their capital and then how that fits into privately held businesses. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in, and I really hope you enjoy this episode with Dr. Craig Everett. Sponsored by Arcona's Intentional Growth Digital Course. Ryan Tansom and Pat Hobby show you how to shift your mindset away from solving for annual income to focusing on strategies that create long-term value, giving you the freedom and choices to take control of the future destiny of your business. Accelerate your knowledge with 36 videos and dozens of exercises that combine decades of experience buying, growing, and selling companies. Learn more by going to arcona.io or visiting the show notes. Dr. Craig Everett, how are we? And I said doctor because even though you said you don't have to, I wanted to at least introduce you with uh, the credentials you have. How are we today? Doing great. Thanks for having me, Ryan. I am super excited. I was just telling you before we hit record that uh, I've been following your study and I've been referencing it to people in the presentations that I give just because, I mean, I think the last report when I printed it off, it was like 150 pages or whatever. I don't even know if I do a double sided it, but so much valuable information in it. And you guys are just about ready to launch uh, the most updated survey. And a lot has happened since the last one that you guys had published um, in a lot of the markets have changed. But why don't you give everybody just kind of a flyby of you know your bio, like what, what's your background and what's the study? And then we'll go back and we'll unpack a bunch of it. Okay, well, uh, my uh, my day job is I'm a, I'm a finance professor at Pepperdine. Came into academia a little bit late in life, so I have actually a lot of you know, real life experience, both in, in consulting. I was at Northrop Grumman for many years and uh, at a couple of startups. Uh, then went back and got my PhD, uh, actually a little bit late in life. I was 40 when I, oh, when wow. I started my PhD. And, uh, and, and that's, yeah, that has, uh, that's a little bit interesting because everybody what? else is in their mid twenties. Uh, and, uh, I'm sitting there at 40, uh, at 40. And so it, uh, it was, it was, uh, it was quite the experience. I, uh, I had a, uh, yeah, it was, uh, all of my advanced math, uh, was on my transcript from my undergrad days, but it'd been like, you know, 20 rusty. years. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and not just rusty. See, I mm. thought it was going to be rusty and I thought it was like, Oh, this will all come back and I'll just remember, I'll remember it. Uh, just have to brush <laughs> up a little bit, but it didn't, I had to relearn it from scratch. All, you know, by the kind of the advanced calculus and beyond that linear algebra, differential equations, it was completely gone because I hadn't used them in my, in my career. So I actually had to, to relearn those, to be able to compete against these students, uh, you know, especially ones from like Russia and China that already had PhDs and were doing a second PhD. Oh my goodness! And, uh, and so it's like it was a uh, it was a really stressful four years. That was at, that was at Purdue. Um, why why, why did you go back, Craig? Interesting, interesting story. So my original plan when I graduated from 
uh, from college was I, I wanted to be a, a professor, but then I kind of got sidetracked. I got into consulting. You know, that was interesting. Then I got married and I didn't want to be poor and go back to school again. It's <laughs> <Yeah, that's laughs> a solid so, sales pitch, right? Like, I'm just going to sit here, not earn any income and just become smarter <laughs> while you're taking care of everything. <laughs> exactly. The, uh, and so it was when, uh, Northrop actually sent me back for an MBA and, you know, I was in, you know, I was in management and such. And the, uh, so I was sitting in class and looking at these professors up uh, talking to us at the, at the front of the class and remember, it's like, hey, that's what I wanted to do. So basically that reignited that desire in me to, to, to be a professor. And so once I had, after my MBA and when I fulfilled my two-year obligation uh, to the company after I finished, uh, I went back and, uh, and, and, uh, and got, a, got a PhD. I was very, the, uh, even though I was very qualified on paper, I was kind of too old for uh, for a PhD. And so a, a lot of the programs that, you know, I would have qualified for earlier in my life, uh, I didn't qualify anymore hmm. because of my age. And, oh, uh, really? I did not know yeah. that. I did not well, know PhDs well, were age-related. Well, I mean, they're not not technically, but look at it this way. It, it's it's a fair criticism. Essentially, PhDs, for the most part, are free. Uh, if you're in a full-time PhD program, you know, they give you a stipend and, you know, the, hmm. uh, you know no tuition. That, that's the typical uh, uh, do doctoral program, particularly a PhD program. Now, DBA, that's different, um, you know, that you pay for. But, uh, yeah, PhDs, it's a research degree. And so the the university is actually investing in you, and they want to invest in people that have a full career instead of half a career uh, uh, ahead of them. So it's uh, it's just kind of a uh, efficiency thing. A half a career. <laughs> I, I know. I, I can tell you what my partners wouldn't consider themselves halfway into a career, <laughs> but yes, I, super fascinating. So, so, you know, so that's the idea. So, I mean, I was, as you know, I was fortunate to get into the program that I got into. It was a, it was a very good program. And, uh, and yeah, so that was my journey back into, uh, academia and, uh, I really like it. I mean, I, 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 I liked Northrop a lot, but I noticed my, my kids were fairly young at the time and it seemed like as time goes, went by and I went, uh, higher and higher in the, in the company, uh, I was seeing my kids less and less. And, uh, and so being a professor kind of gives me the flexibility to, to spend time with my family and, and organize my time the way I want to, rather than, uh, mm -hmm. the way somebody else wants to. That's awesome. So did you jump right into teaching right after you got your PhD then? Yes. So I would love to, and, and I don't know in the timeline where this study came from, but I'm kind of curious on like in for the audience, what is what are the topics that you teach? Why did you why did you pick those? And then how did that transpire into what is now the Pepperdine study? So um, my both my research and teaching interests are uh, entrepreneurial finance, private capital markets. Uh, I also teach entertainment finance uh, at uh, at Pepperdine for the people who are doing a entertainment concentration. Huh. Um, the entertainment finance is fascinating, actually, because, you know, they use a lot of the same words that normal finance is doing, but they mean them completely differently. Oh, super <laughs> fast. Well, and I noticed that because I, you, you, I don't know where in your time, if I'm already, if I'm stealing part of your thunder from the future, but you, you've written children's books, which I thought were so fascinating. And I was like, and like, because I just think about me trying to teach my kids, like what we're talking about, like, I don't even know where you'd start. And you've got, I think one of them is about entertainment financing and it's a book or it's an encyclopedia about jargon in the in the industry i don't yeah, know if that's a yeah. children's book 
That, that's the thing. So when I teach my my entertainment finance class, I, my main goal is for students that are interested in the you know film and television industries in particular that I want them to be able to sit in a meeting uh, discussing finance and be able to understand what the heck it, uh, is being talked about. And uh, and you can't just look stuff up and, and Google it and, you know, during a meeting because that makes you look like an idiot. So uh, <laughs> you have to have a, you have to have some vocabulary, uh, you know, and, and uh, you know, just one example, you know, something that's um, that's that's different from entertainment finance and regular finance term sheet. So. Mm-hmm. So, you know, most of us think of a term sheet uh, in a particular way, you know, it, it lays out, it's supposed to be in basic English, um, you know, the, the terms of the deal, like a Supposed to be, but deal. until the attorneys get in touch with it. So both parties, you know, sign the term sheet, uh, but it's not legally binding in, in normal finance. Just, that, that goes, that just demonstrates the understanding of both parties. Mm-hmm. Then it goes to the lawyers to write the actual investment contract. Uh, and so... In entertainment, the term sheet is legally binding because that's usually as far as it goes. Um, and uh, and uh, you know, it's, Hollywood's kind of loosey goosey, hmm. and uh, and and so you know, the, so the term sheet is very different between the two. You'd think it'd be the same thing, same term, but uh, yeah, but it, but it's not. It's a, it, it's actually the uh, you know the the the, the final <laughs> agreement in a lot of cases, particularly very different use case. Yeah. So what was your what was your passion, Craig? in finance and business finance and specifically like the private markets. Like, I mean, all the different places you could go focus. I mean, especially with, I can only imagine when, when the timelines that you're getting this, I mean, the amount of attraction towards wall street and private equity and all the big markets, it's easy to make more money, easy to, you know, find a, a niche and provide value that direction. What was your interest in this particular marketplace? Well, I think it's because you know, my historically my family has been entrepreneurs and like small business people and such and and uh, you know starting with my my grandfather who had uh, the Everett Saw Company and it, he made uh, <laughs> they made buck saws and so you know we all know what happened you know what happened there is uh, as uh, the chainsaw kind of replaced the buck saw and, uh, and uh, <laughs> a little bit more effective <laughs> so, <laughs> so basically that you know buck saws became obsolete but uh, you know for a while he. You know, for a long time, the, you know, his family survived on his, his his saw company, you know, and my and my dad, my sister, and myself. It's like everybody's kind of been involved in in the entrepreneurial space. You know, not necessarily like the tech space, but just you know, just regular small businesses, you mm-hmm. know, restaurants and gas stations and car washes and real mm-hmm. estate and and that and that sort of thing. And so it's kind of in my blood. You know, my father is deceased, but he would be very disappointed in me that I'm a professor and uh, and and not doing real work. Oh come on! <laughs> that, yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, and this is where, like when you, when you before you and I hit record, like you know, my passion for finance, Craig, is like the it's such a backwards way that I got into it because like I was telling you a little bit of our background story and like the most of the challenges that we dealt with in the business. Were, were wrong or incorrectly financed and like the the access to the right kind of finance and the right kind of funds to support the growth and to understand what the hell we were doing besides just trying to sell more stuff and it was we just never got the translation into the stuff into the language and the, the useful information that you provide now so like mine was out of pure like almost a complete frustration and so like when you thought about jumping into finance and specifically business finance was there what was your intent with going into it, like what what was the impact that you wanted to make? Well, I think the impact that I wanted to make is I wanted to to 
help particularly entrepreneurs understand finance, understand how it impacts uh, them, understand the sources of finance. And, you know, if there are always other avenues to go, if, if you don't qualify or don't get investment from one source of financing, there will be ones that you do qualify for. Now, as you go along that continuum, the, uh, the, the deal terms won't be as good and such, but uh, there's, you know, there's pretty much, pretty much always uh, money out there. And it just kind of depends on what the terms are. What is your um, your experience with entrepreneurs knowing that? Um, usually, entrepreneurs don't know much about it. In fact, that's a question that we ask in our survey. And 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 generally, uh, the entrepreneurs don't know generally a lot about business. They have an idea, they have technical knowledge, but if they're a first time uh, startup they usually don't know the business side very well and they don't know how to, how to qualify for capital. They don't know what investors are looking uh, for. Now we were talking about the private capital markets project. I also involved in the, uh, I'm the director of the most fundable companies competition at, at Pepperdine. And, and that's a specific goal of that program is to help educate entrepreneurs on what investors are looking for, because usually they have no idea and they go through our process, uh, which is pretty rigorous. And the biggest takeaway, even if they don't make our winners list, is they learn what investors are looking for and what uh, T's they have to cross and what I's they have to dot uh, before investors will consider uh, making an investment in them. Well, in that that topic right there that you just brought up, I think is going to be able to be a great place to continue to launch uh, this conversation because before we hit record, we were talking about you know people understanding value valuations and then like what actually creates more value and essentially thinking about it from an investor perspective. And what I have found over and over again, Craig, is that on on the podcast when I've interviewed people. They learn what creates value after their biggest deal or their only deal is done. <laughs> and so it's like this, oh, wouldn't that have been nice to be able to look at my business as an asset the whole time and then all the time and money I'm putting into this, if it's actually growing it in value or not, and like how the most effective way to grow it is. And they just don't necessarily look at it from that lens. So why did you talk about like capital and maybe, maybe we just p- take that topic we were talking about of cost of capital and like, I don't know how to re-engineer what you said, but like you want to take that and then just kind of complete what I was talking, what you, what you were saying about the cost of capital and how people view value. Sure. So now with the big public companies, it's, it's really easy to know the, know the value, the market value of the company. You just, you know, take the, uh, stock price and multiply it by the uh, number of shares outstanding and add in your long-term debt. And pretty much there, you've got the value of the company and you can know that value at any moment in time. Mm-hmm. So with private businesses, it's not that easy. The The only time you really know for sure the value of the company is at, is at the time of a, a transaction, like an equity transaction. So at that point in time, you know exactly what the stock price is because somebody bought the stock at that price. But other times, most business owners have no idea whether what the value of their company is and whether that value is growing or shrinking. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that's one of the things that we're trying to get at with the with the private capital markets uh, report and project is that 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 cost of capital and that and be able to use that for valuation because so this is the deal so if you if your company 
and this is kind of a very, in a nutshell, explanation. If your company, its ROI, return on investment, is greater than your cost of capital, you're growing your company. The valuation is becoming larger. If your ROI is less than your cost of capital, then you're bleeding value. You're, you're, the value of your company is shrinking. And so that's why it's really important to understand both what your cost of capital is and, and, you know, and what, your, what your returning is, because then you know, am, am I doing a good job? Am I growing my company or am I shrinking my company? This is so beautiful, Craig. I mean, honestly, like what you said, in a nutshell, like that, and we're going to talk about how to figure that out and what that means. But like, like the amount of people that don't know that is so staggering. We never did. I mean, like, and to understand that in that simple terms of if we are exceeding the cost of capital, then we're actually making progress. Because I think as so many people, Craig, like the pure frustration comes from am I on track or not, Craig? <laughs> and if I can't tell you that, I'm constantly living in limbo land or the gut feel. And it's like this decision that it's a lot of, I think that's where a lot of the flashy object syndrome comes from is just not knowing and not having a guiding North star. And so for the listeners, if if we could, if you could do me a favor and let's kind of break down, like, what do you even mean by cost of capital? So like, yeah, they're just taking, taking run with it. Okay, so I mean, cost of capital. Generally, what we're talking about is a like a weighted average cost of capital. Where if you have bank loans, your cost of capital for those loans is the interest rate. Uh, if it's an equity investor, your cost of capital there is going to be the expected returns of the investor. So the problem a lot of business owners, and we ask this question, and we ask we ask private business owners just generally in our in our surveys okay what what's your cost of capital and it's amazing how many people will say zero they say okay <laughs> we don't have any loans we i don't have any outside investors therefore my cost of capital is zero that's not actually the case because you have your capital invested in there and you have opportunity cost. You could have just take that money and invested in the S&P 500 and get, you know, an average of 10% return plus or minus, so, you know, over over time. So your cost of capital has to be at least 10% because you could have invested your own money elsewhere. Mm -hmm. um, but of course, your risk profile for your business is much higher much higher risk than a fully diversified S&P 500 portfolio. So you got to think, okay, my my cost of capital must actually be higher than that 10% mm -hmm. S&P 500 because if I were to get outside investors, they would have to be compensated for the extra risk. So it'd have to be they'd have to be getting that 10% S&P 500 return plus a lot more to compensate for the risk of of investing in a uh, in a in a private business, an individual business. Illiquid, has, small, private business. <laughs> illiquid, small, private business with huge idiosyncratic risk. It's like, so, you know, so most um, equity cost of capital estimates generally are kind of in the, you know, 25% or so. That's from private equity. Now, venture capital tends to be a little bit higher where their expected returns are more like, you know, 35%, mm -hmm. 30, 35%. But uh, so, but most business owners have no clue about this and they don't, they don't realize that opportunity cost uh, piece of it, where mm -hmm. even they even they themselves could invest in something else uh, if they wanted to instead of their own business. So, regardless of whether you have outside investors or loans, you do have a cost of capital. Well, and what I think is one of the big key components here, Craig, that I see as an issue of why this is the case is that what what one thing that I've I've gathered over the years is that a lot of entrepreneurs that are founders 
they, they when, when I think about a lifestyle business, they like my dad and I running a lifestyle business where you're solving for annual income. How much cash can I pull out of this company from perks, distributions, etc.? And it's a very expensive, very stressful job. And they don't view this thing called the asset, which has equity. And like, so they kind of going back to what you're saying is that's someone can say it's zero because they don't see their company as an actual asset. So they don't see the opportunity cost. Even it might be worth a half million bucks. You could still put it in the S&P 500 if it's only half a million bucks. So they're not even, they don't even have that kind of clarity to even say, what are my opportunity costs? They don't view it that way. And so I don't know if that's something that you've, you've kind of gathered throughout the study or if you guys uh, peel that back. Oh yes, I mean, and also from my, uh, you know, from my my family history, I know my my dad, um, you know, his goal with his business wasn't the, wasn't necessarily the value of the company; it was maximizing his own personal wealth, and and so, but that's and that's a will yield a very different strategy than if you're actually trying to sell your business um, because. Most valuations of going concern businesses, uh, profit or profitable businesses, they're going by some uh, EBITDA multiple, uh, EBITDA earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, mm-hmm. amortization, fancy way of saying profit. So it's some, uh, some multiple of the profit is what their company will be valued at. Well, my dad was not trying to maximize profit because that would have maximized his taxes. And so, <laughs> he's, truth? so, so he's trying to minimize taxes. So he's, he's trying to make sure the the company is, is, has as little profit as possible, you know, and he's kind of like, you know, you know, sucking the business dry, uh, you know, for certain trying to still stay in business, but trying to take out as, as much as he mm-hmm. can. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, and, and a lot of business owners are like that. They're not necessarily trying to maximize profit because, you know, they're, they're trying to maximize their lifestyle and minimize their taxes. Mm-hmm. But if you're trying to sell your business, you know, you have to kind of reverse that and, uh, mm-hmm. and, and, uh, and start trying to maximize profit. Cause that's what other people will look at when they're buying the business. Yep. Well, and I think that that's, that lens Craig is so helpful where you're looking at the business from the back end of within the, as an investor's mindset, which is what should the return of this thing be that we're creating wealth with. And if, unless you've Unless you somehow have shifted your mindset, been through transaction, or like have you know gone through your courses and in, in, in education, is like how else do you understand that this thing is an asset and what those trade offs are? Because I don't think, you know, using our word intentional, I don't think anybody's in, very few people I know have intentionally decided I'm either going to maximize personal wealth, lifestyle, business. That's fine, and my expectations are such versus. I'm going to maximize the value of this company by funding it the right way to get the value that I want. And, and, and it's an intentional choice. It's usually I want to maximize my personal wealth and I want to have the highest valuation possible <laughs> when I eventually go to sell it. I don't know if you've got similar experiences. Yeah, th- those are mutually exclusive. Um, so what... <laughs> Yeah. So, and that's one thing that VCs, uh, when they're looking at potential investments, they look at the founder, and you know they have to make a determination: is this guy, is this try, guy trying to maximize the, his lifestyle? And you know, it, and if so, that sends up red flags. Okay, this this could turn into a lifestyle business, in which case the VCs will be screwed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and so you know they're trying to make that determination: is this person trying to grow the business as fast as they can for the next five years, and then get out? Or do they want to be king and uh, and and reign over their 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 business forever? And if that's the case, then the VCs will run away. So um, interesting. 
And when I think about, um, before we get into, cause I want to get into kind of the spectrum of funding and like how the different investors and in cause I think a lot of people have confusions on that. And a lot, a lot of your work, um, uh, puts clarity on that, but I want to go back to weighted average cost of capital. Cause Craig, in a, in our training, we have a section in principle two, and we're talking about valuations and deal structures. Like we say, Hey, there's this thing called whack weighted average cost of capital. And it's actually a mathematical equation. That's part of a multiple because how many people I know, and I was definitely guilty of this willy nilly multiples, right? Like, Oh, you get a 10, 10 X revenue. You over here, get a five X. And they, they talk to their friends at, you know, their dinner or the golf tournament. And like, they're just thrown out willy nilly, but there's actual logic that goes in it. So if you could do me and the audience a, a huge favor is maybe just kind of a basic explanation of what WAC is and then how that gets into what a multiple actually is. Sure. So, so WAC, like you said, is weighted average cost of capital. And, you know, the simplest way to explain that is if uh, we'll use a uh, very, uh, very simple math here. Let's say your company is funded you know, 50% with equity investors and 50% with bank loans. And let's say that your, uh, your your interest rate for the bank loan is 10% and your cost of capital for the, uh, uh, for the equity investment is 20%. So basically you have half your capital at 10%, half your capital mm -hmm. at 20%. So your weighted average cost of capital would be 15%. Uh, now, of course, those weights aren't going to be 50-50, and mm -hmm. you know those uh, those numbers aren't going to aren't going to be exactly right. But that's the way to understand it. It's, it's basically taking a, a weighted average of your various sources of capital and the and the and the returns, the expected returns on those. Um, with the debt, it's very easy because the expected returns are documented, um, <laughs> right. and uh, and the uh, is your interest rate. Uh, but with the equity, it's a little bit uh, a little bit fuzzier. Uh, so that's the weighted average cost of capital. And so that's what you have to look at. If And the reason why that's important is because, so every valuation method is is at least theoretically related to a discounted cash flow analysis. And so when you're doing a multiples type calculation, you're just kind of shortcutting, but underneath that is a discounted cash flow. Like there's real like, information, like we were saying, like it's yeah. not just made up. <laughs> So basically, you know, that's estimating your cash flows out into the future. And then each of those cash flows out in the future, of course, you know, $1,000 today is worth more than $1,000 a year from now. And uh, and then $1,000 two years from now is worth even less. But how much less? And that's what you use that cost of capital for is the discount rate, is how much you're discounting that each year uh, in order to get back to the present value right now. And so, so basically... Yeah, uh, any sort of multiples like an EBITDA. Um, again, it's like that's a profit multiple, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. or a revenue multiple is is somehow ties into that discount of cash flow valuation that's happening underneath. But it's just kind of giving you a ballpark. Mm -hmm. um, now, that's how it's supposed to work. Uh, right now, the uh, uh, you know the multiples are just kind of like crazy and and seem <laughs> kind of crazy <laughs> and seem kind of random. And the uh, and so it's uh, you know ten years ago it seemed like it it it, it worked a lot more pr predictably. But well, right and now, like, let's let's put a pin in the, pin in this because I want to go back into like when we start talking about what is actually going on right now and why because I think you and I can have a, a fruitful conversation on that. But before we move on. So with the weighted average cost of capital and the, the how you broke it down, Craig, with the 50-50, it's very interesting kind of tying in your earlier comment. If someone has no bank financing, which is 50% of the equation, 
and they don't see their company as an asset, which is the equity and the return on their equity that they should get, they truly are going to say nothing, right? That, that, that's how they got to the nothing answer, which is I don't understand equity and what I should be getting for my own equity in my company. And I have no bank financing, so I have zero cost of capital, right? <laughs> yeah, that's what they think. Yeah. So, so there's a, 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 I believe, a mutual friend of ours who actually introduced me to, to your study to begin with, Ken Sanginario. And so he's the first person that told me what the heck WAC means in his system, which is uh, our whole principle for about growing value by de-risking cash flow is, uh, is, is founded on Ken's eight functional areas. And he talks about company-specific risk. So I don't know if you want to speak. speak yeah, I see the smile. I love it. So you want to kind of give your definition of company-specific risk and how it plays into the, to the example you just gave? Okay, sure. The, uh, so... Company-specific risk is is something that's used in uh, in something called the build-up method. To to that that's a way of coming up with a cost of capital for a company, and so the build-up method, and it's very standard. So, uh, but there's some th- there's some problems with it. One is that it's based on public company data, and so it's kind of an apples and oranges thing with uh, with private companies. So what you're doing with the build-up method is you're you're starting with like the risk-free rate, like a 10-year treasury bond uh, interest rate. You take that and you know and and you add certain things to it. You you add equity risk premium because we're talking about an equity valuation, um, which you know generally is you know over time around six percent. So mm-hmm. on average each year the you know the S P 500 returns six percent more than uh, the treasury, the treasury bond rate. And you're yeah, asking but, for, just to clarify for the listeners, you're asking for a bigger return because of the additional risk you're taking. That's all when right. you're saying building up, you're just building up to a bigger return, right? So, so yeah, the, our goal here is to build up to what the cost of capital for a company. And so we start with, so with using the build up method, build up method, you start with risk-free rate, uh, which 10 year treasury, a lot of people use, Add the equity risk premium, uh, generally around six percent. Uh, it goes up, up and down. You add in a, a industry premium or discount. So if your industry is generally has a higher cost of capital or a lower cost of capital, you adjust for that. Size risk: the larger the company, the lower the risk. So you add in a, a premium or discount for the size risk. Yeah. Then at the uh, then at the very end. You throw in something called a company-specific risk premium, and uh, and what you're trying to do is identify: is this company you know riskier than normal or less risky than normal? What I don't like about it is kind of a fudge factor, and uh, you know my apologies to valuation professionals who may disagree <laughs> with me on that. But yeah. uh, but but essentially, if if there's a if you have a target in your mind, what you think the uh, cost of capital is, that's where you that that's where you adjust it. Uh, that's up or the down lever. For that company, yeah. <laughs> well, so, and, the, and I, I I totally agree, Craig. And it was so interesting when I was going through Ken's training years ago, and I like was like, what? So like. Like and then there's a whole like kind of set of stipulations for valuation professionals. Like, hey, if it's above this, you might be like flagged and potentially li- liable for the lawsuit if there's some dispute about this. So there's kind of a range that they need to get it in, like right down the fairway every single time. And it's like, well, it's like you said, it's using this as kind of like the the junk drawer. But there's a lot of reality inside of that where if you had two companies at the same revenue, same EBITDA, same industry. 
their operations might be wildly different. So there's there's truth in it, but how it's used might be either not done correctly or completely used in a different form. Is that a, is that a fair fair statement? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, there's I mean, there's there's reasons for doing that because there is there is company specific risk and such. But uh, yeah, it's 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 the one. Um, yeah, it's the one that you would use as your lever if uh, if you. Uh, you know, somehow the the rest of it is is coming up with something that's not rational, so that, <laughs> or you don't think you, is rational, right? And so if you can kind of come, well, we can close the loop on this of taking the that weighted average cost of capital that discount, and then saying how does that how does that actually factor underneath the multiple, like or inside the multiple, like you were descri- that you were describing earlier. So basically, multiples, um, and again, it's it's there are other factors that I think are driving multiples more than uh, than fundamentals um, right now. But uh, you know, the idea is that it's kind of an inverse relationship. So the uh, so you know the 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 higher the the higher the discount rate, the higher the cost of capital. You know, the lower the the lower the multiple. But um, yeah, it's so. I mean, right now, for example. Um, Take a twenty percent, twenty percent weighted average cost cap or something. How would that get into the multiple? So, uh, let's see. I, the the um, I mean, so twenty percent. I mean, the the simplest way to look at, it, and you know, p- there are people with differing opinions on this, but you know, just uh, you know, take the you know, twenty percent, twenty percent cost of capital would you know, just take the inverse of that, and that would be a uh, you know a five x multiple. That's that's the simplest way of of looking at it. That's not really that accurate anymore. I mean, that, but that's generally how it's, you know. So why, why do you say that? Well, because right now we have other things going on, uh, like um, like a lot of dry powder in, in private equity and uh, venture capital and even angel investing and such. And so there's more competition to get into deals Mm-hmm. Which basically means that uh, um, professional investors and fund managers and such are willing to uh, overpay uh, to to get into to get into deals, and that's messing everything up. So multiples are just a lot higher now than they really should be. Pure inflation, um, right? I mean, it's inflation on the assets. I mean, it's people trying to deploy their capital, get a return somehow, and well, competing yeah. for it. There's that. I mean, certainly, certainly, inflation. Uh, businesses are assets. So as assets uh, inflate and the like, the dollar devalues. Obviously, the uh, uh, the assets going to be worth more. But I, what I'm talking about is beyond that. What I'm talking about is because you have multiple investors competing for deals, they're just and you know, yeah, you can look at inflation that way as like too many dollars chasing uh, too mm-hmm. too few goods. It's like yes, that's that's a uh, economic cycle approach to inflation. So that's w- one way that uh, people, the, the assets inflate. The other way is that too much money, uh, basically, you know, the, uh, um, it's not just a demand thing. It's just, it's, it's a printing press. Just, it's a printing press thing. <laughs> yeah. And so as, as a currency devalues, you also get inflation that way. And that, so that's, um, so those kind of two different and politicians mm-hmm. conflate the two. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, the, those are two different approaches. So, what I'm saying is like, yeah, VCs in particular, they're 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 chasing these deals and uh, and competing against each other, and so the the percentage of the company that they're willing to take for a certain investment, you know, gets uh, bid down, and the amount of money they're willing to pay gets bid up, and so this is kind of messing up 
I mean, you never used to have, you know, early stage, like post-revenue companies, you know, the, uh, meaning they already have, they're already selling their thing, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, the revenue multiples are crazy. Like, you know, <laughs> it's insane, Greg. I, like I have no 11%, words for it. <laughs> 12%, 15%, 20%. It's like, okay, this is crazy for revenue. Multi- <laughs> I remember when revenue multiples were, were like, uh, were like two X, not 15 X. Uh, and so <laughs> the, uh, yeah, so it's, um, yeah, so it's kind of crazy right now, and and it's mostly because uh, there's too much money chasing too few deals. The other thing is, uh, you know, related to that is that the so in 1980 when when VC and private equity funds took off because of uh, and they were never a very big thing, uh, and then in 1980 or, and thereabouts, the couple of years more or less than that, a couple of things happened. So the uh, the capital gains tax rate uh, changed, and so to capital gains capital gains used to be taxed like regular income. Mm-hmm. Then in 1980, you know, it it went way down, and so um, so back when they were they were taxed the same as income. There was no real advantage to invest in uh, in in smaller companies because it was a lot higher risk and capital gains, which is most of what you get from investment in a smaller company, was taxed the same as dividends. And so, um, so basically, equity investors tended to to invest in blue chip dividend paying stocks, especially institutions like, uh, you know, like pension funds and mm-hmm. insurance funds and such. So when, so when the tax rate changed, it was, uh, it was, it became very advantageous to invest in, in smaller companies because you were taxed on capital gains at a small, at a lower rate. Now, the other thing that happened back then is that what was called at the time, the prudent man rule, uh, now it's called the prudent person rule, but that was a rule from department of labor, uh, an ERISA, uh, rule that, uh, basically said that you couldn't make any investment if you're, if you were managing, you had fiduciary duty, you were managing like the insurance fund or pension fund, the Department of Labor, Labor cares more about pension funds. But basically, you really couldn't invest in small in small private companies if you were a big uh, fund mm-hmm. manager, like pension fund manager, because that was considered imprudent, uh, unwise, because of the risk profile. Well, the, in 1980, they changed that to be able to look at investments as a portfolio rather than as on an individual basis. So as we all know from portfolio theory uh, is that uh, as you increase the number of your investments in your portfolio, particularly if they're uncorrelated, you can diversify away your mm-hmm. idiosyncratic risk of that, the individual investments within that portfolio and just be left with the, the overall systematic risk of mm-hmm. uh, the, the entire portfolio. So that allowed uh, pension funds and such to start investing in private equity funds and venture capital funds because those were portfolios uh, instead of individual investments. So the upshot of all this, why I'm getting this. I was say even Ed, one that, one that, and this is where because just to interject there, enter the scene, KKR, Blackstone, all in the eighties. I mean, King of Capital. That like that book, like it was like. Like oh my god! I mean Steve Schwartzman and Pete. I uh, can't remember Pete's last name. Is uh, Pete Peterson? I don't know if it's. But anyways, both of those two. I mean they started that and they're like. I mean they, they're like systemic risk to the whole world now because of how big Blackstone is. I mean it's <laughs> ridiculous. But they started in the eighties, didn't they? Somewhere around there. Yeah. So this all started. Uh, so basically, both 
private equity and venture capital just exploded after that. And generally, yeah, they're, yeah. So lots <laughs> of capital started flowing into venture capital and private equity for that, for that reason. And over time, though, so venture capital started out actually investing in new ventures. That's where the, uh, the, the name came from. But then since then, they've moved away from uh, startup investing into growth company investing. Uh, so people that are more on the later stage of, of, a, of a new venture where they actually have profit, or even if they don't have profit, they have very, very high growth. Um, so the reason why I bring that up is the situation right now is it's gotten so competitive to for these VC firms uh, to actually deploy their capital to actually make mm -hmm. investments and you know limited partners are investing in their funds, um, but the money's just sitting there because they can't find anything to invest. So now, VCs are actually kind of moving back mm -hmm. uh, earlier to earlier stage companies, for the main reason is because. If you if you get in early on a company in an early round, then you generally have rights of first refusal on the later rounds. So now uh, VCs are are shotgunning money out to these uh, uh, to these earlier startups. Uh, they know only one one out of ten is going to make it into a you know into a growth company, but it's worth it to them just to have a foot in the door. So they can, you know, they still are interested in growth stage mostly, but they invest in the early stage more and more these days in order to get their foot in the door and be able to have access to the the growth stage investments, um, which well, and, now and, being... to, and probably to be able to also uh, close the door on other people and protect the cap table for themselves would be my guess. Yeah. So it's basically it's a it's a, it's a defensive move, and mm -hmm. uh, and because they're having a hard time getting their dollars invested because they can't find the good deals to do that. And the best way to do that is to kind of seed these earlier stage companies. So they have, you know, so they have access to them later on. Well, and I think about as we continue this, and, that, and that's, by, and by the way, that's, that's another thing that's driving up these multiples is, uh, is basically it's this, they're all this dry powder or money sitting in these venture funds that, isn't invested. That's what's dry powder. Well, is. Like, let's let's bit. let's take let's take just the math, Craig. And like, if it's two trillion dollars that everybody's saying, or give or take a trillion, I, I've heard you know varying degrees, but let's say it's two trillion. And VCs and private equity firms who traditionally do the two and twenty, two percent management fee and the twenty percent on the upside of the carried interest. Yeah. And it's, they're getting charged two percent on non-deployed money that's just sitting there. So like, what's two percent of two trillion? Is that is that two hundred? <laughs> is that two hundred million or is that two billion? I don't even know. Is that two billion? Probably. I, I so don't, yeah, it's I, just, I, don't do, um, <laughs> I don't do math during interviews. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I shouldn't do that. I should say that for my team, no matter what. But like, that's my. But to your, what I'm doing is trying to reinforce your point, which is, it's they're charging their investors two percent of the money they haven't spent yet. So at some point, like if you and I had the hundred million dollar fund and we haven't spent it, it's been two years, and we haven't bought anything. Our investors are going to be going, "Why, Craig and Ryan, have you not bought something yet? Go find a deal, and then we're going to end up overpaying just to continue the cycle." <laughs> well, what, one way that that's handled in a lot of funds um, is, you know, if it's a, a ten year fund, and most of these funds are ten year funds, they will. Uh, at the first part, at the first few years, or maybe even the first five years of the fund, the management fee will be based on committed capital, um, and so yeah, so they're going to be get, 
big 2% based on that. But at somewhere along the point, like at year five, it'll transition to invested capital. Because, you know, the first year of the fund, of course, you know, all the capital isn't going to be invested. They're mm-hmm. still looking for investments and such. So, you know, you're as an investor, you're giving them a, a chance. You know, they have to be able to run their comp- their, their venture firm and, and keep the lights on. So, It'll be based on committed capital, but then at some point it will transition to invested capital. So they'll only get the management fee based on what's actually been invested. So a lot of funds work that way. Which again, if you're in year four, spend the money so you can, because otherwise your your cash flow runs out as a firm. So so they're desperate to spend the money. And so you, you just wonder, they have a little bit of a, you know, a moral FOMO. hazard there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah more, the, exactly. the uh, you know, basically to to take um, to take bad bad deals or maybe just suboptimal deals mm-hmm. uh, in order to get their money out because uh, they have to do that and they're and and generally overpay. Um, yep. Which uh, you know, overpaying for an asset works out fine as long as the people buying it from you are also overpaying on the, on the back end. Um, <laughs> but if, if they're not, if it's a, it's a fair valuation, then you've just cut your investors returns by, uh, by overpaying on the front end. And that's that musical chairs. And you just want to make sure that when the music <laughs> stops, that you're not the one holding the bag, right? So without the chair. And exactly. So I, I think what, what's so refreshing and fascinating about this conversation, Craig, is like, I didn't know any of this stuff years ago, like at all, running a business with all these high impact decisions we have to make every day, which is why I've been gravitated towards, have gravitated towards the study that you bring, because we can go look up CNBC and go to Wall Street uh, Journal and get p- public market information. This is what Ken Sanjanaro just beat into my head is, that is not the same as privately held companies. Because I know after interviewing 17 banks trying to get new financing in 2012, it's not the same as saying, hey, we have another percentage of the company we're willing to sell and just boom, a bunch of money comes into our account. So like, how did, after you start teaching, kind of maybe give us the birth story of the study and what was your intent with the study and kind of what's in the guts of the study? Okay, so so I did not start it. I, I I joined Pepperdine in 2011 and it had already been, this had already been going on for a few years uh, at oh, that well, point. When was so- the first... First study that wouldn't they go up? Uh, first one was 2009. Okay. Um, and, and so, uh, you know, I had been at Pepperdine about a year. Uh, so it was about 2012 that I took over um, because uh, my, my predecessor, John Paglia, who, uh, who, who, came up with this whole project, got, you know, got promoted and he needed somebody to take over for him. So, so I did, cause it was right up my alley as far cool. as uh, my, uh, my research interest and teaching interest. And so I've been doing it since 2012. Got it. So, and for the listeners, what what is the so for Pepperdine and for the, your predecessor, like what was the purpose of it, and like and kind of walk us through the methodology of the study and what's in it? Because I think the whole goal, and we're going to be giving adding links to the in the show notes for people, because I think it provides a completely different lens of information that people don't get elsewhere. And hopefully through this podcast and the exposure that we'll be getting, we can continue to um, increase the reach that you guys have. Okay, so, uh, and I hinted at this earlier, but so the report has a lot of data um, on industry trends and financing trends and all that. But when it comes down to it, the main purpose of it is is determining cost of capital and making it easy. Like table one in the report every year has you know summarizes uh, cost of capital from various deal sizes and various sources, and so that's the you know. That's the money table, um, the uh, what most people look at, table one. Um, <laughs> but the uh, but and the reason for that is because of uh, 
you know, John Paglia and a uh, person he was working with at the time, uh, Rob Slee, um, just felt that the buildup method, which we talked about earlier, um, was flawed. And, and that that's not the, that's not the best way that the problem is because you're using public market data and you have that whole company specific risk premium thing going on. It's like, okay, this is, uh, you're kind of backing into your, um, uh, to your result, uh, using the build up method. So the idea here, they, okay. So they want to come up with a different approach mm -hmm. to determining cost of capital. And so since cost of capital is an opportunity cost. Uh, it means uh, investors uh, and private businesses, they have a broad range of possibilities that they can invest in. So they have to be convinced to invest in your company rather than all the other uh, possibilities they have, whether it's uh, you know public company stocks or bonds or other private mm -hmm. businesses or whatever. So you have to attract their company, their, their capital to your business. And so in theory and in principle, uh, cost of capital is, a, is an opportunity cost. And so the expected returns of the investors has to equal on average and over time, your, the cost of capital to the business. Because if you, if you don't, you know, return, uh, what the investors are expecting, they'll take their money elsewhere, uh, and, and such. Well, so, and let's put, put, I want to interject right there because if business owners are not thinking like an investor, they're never going to even think about the question you just proposed. Yeah, that's true. And and the majority don't think of it on their own. Um, you know, they have to be, uh, somebody has to tell them, it's like, hey, you know, this is how it works. And then they go, oh, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> so, so the idea here is that, uh, okay, so we need to get at what the expected returns from the investors are, whether it's uh, the investor is a bank issuing a loan or an angel investor or a venture capital uh, fund or whatever. We have to get at what the expected returns are. How do we do that? So the uh, so John and uh, and Rob uh, originally came up with the idea as well. Why don't we ask them? Uh, <laughs> Novel idea, right? <laughs> so that's where the that's where the survey came from. Is is just asking all these various capital providers, hey, what are your expected returns? Uh, and then and then that is you know by uh, uh, this idea that cost capital is an opportunity cost where mm -hmm. that's how we're getting at what the cost of capital is for these various types by asking the investors themselves. I love it. It's just like the customer like feedback. It's like, Hey, why don't you just ask your customers what they want? <laughs> You're going to get a lot of good yeah. information. So, so the idea here isn't to replace the buildup method. Um, mm -hmm. It's basically to, to do a real world checkpoint against it. And so, I love it. so that's how a lot of people have a lot, a lot of valuation professionals use our report, but mm -hmm. generally as a, as a check uh, yep. against well, what they're, what they're doing, because the buildup method is well established in the courts and, and such. And so, you know, they're not going to go away from that, but they do want to do a reality check. I love it. And, I think what you just described from the from your survey and the build up method is okay, I want to I want to I want to hear your response to this concept that we've been playing with in our training Craig and it's because I think it has to do with in principle of 3 we talk about exit options so we kind of build up in our in our training of like hey what do you want from the business here are your financial targets how valuations and whack and all this stuff work and then there here are the exit options then what do you do with it you grow value to create the choices that you want so you can pretty much pre-engineer exactly what you want but then there's this whole like depending on your exit. So let's take two examples like an ESOP versus like a strategic sale. So like with an ESOP, 
it's going to be based on the, the value method, the primarily the buildup method, discounted cash flow is going to be based on the risk of the cash flow and how that cash flow can service the seller and the and the senior lender. Right to, to your point, what are the returns that they need for that risk of the cash? But it's going to be mainly based on like it's got to the company has got to pay for the debt. I mean, pretty much to pay for the buyout, so that it, there's like a direct correlation between the cash flow and that value. Strategic buyers can overpay for all the reasons we talked about. And then you throw on the fact that that strategic buyer might be backed by a private equity firm with all of the assumptions that you mentioned and the strategic nature of deploying someone's product or service through 3,000 customers that they wouldn't have had to be able to cross-sell to. So there's a, a, there's a premium difference between like this, what we, what we call, and here's what I was looking for feedback on, is we call it intrinsic financial value, pulling from a lot of Ken Sanginario's work. Like here's the risk of the cash flow and the value associated with it. And then over here, we call it strategic transaction value, where it's that one point in time where the company switched hands for a variety of reasons that are above and beyond the risk of the cash flow. And so what I, and the reason I'm bringing this up is because when we talk to people, and I do this in the presentations that we do, is we say you can control the cash flow risk of your operations and you can pretty much pre-engineer based on if you're gonna to go to a bank or an ESOP, you can pretty much pre-engineer your valuation that you want. Over here, there's all these unknowns that you don't know from the industry, what's hot, what's not, all the stuff that's going on that I have suggested to people, they go to your survey to say, hey, this is what's happening on the strategic transaction value so they can directionally go, hey, I might have a 30% premium by selling to a third party, but I'm going to have to gut it. I have no control over it. And, and is it worth it or not for them? That's like what we're trying to give them is the, the data point. But we've never been able to get any information that's super legit outside you know, for comps. So it's like, hey, go to the Pepperdine study because just will give you an idea. Industries, you know, multiples, ranges, sizes that is different than just looking at the build-up method. So that's how we've been using it. And I, I just appreciate what you guys have been putting together because of, I mean, it's a, how many pages? Like I said, it's 120 usually. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's not small. <laughs> what, what are your thoughts about how, how we're using it in, in our discussions? Yeah. I mean, that's, uh, that's exactly right. Like, yeah, there's a huge difference between evaluation done for an ESOP. ESOPs have to do, they legally are required to do evaluation every year and such. And they use the fair market value uh, method. And that's generally, and they're using a buildup method and, you know, and, uh, you know, very according to a certain formula and such, which is uh, well supported in the courts and such. That's not the same valuation that you're going to get if you're actually, you um, selling the company. Uh, and so the, you know, on the market and generally, well, just to give you well, example, I was gonna say on the market is a, is a really important distinction there because, and just, just to have for some clarification, when we say, you know, you can, you can monetize your business through an ESOP and still be the CEO, which is your wage and your job. So those are, we have to differentiate those two because this is why I hate the words exit planning because people don't even know what they mean. And it's like, well, technically in ESOP, you're monetizing your business, but you could still be the CEO. So like when you say, I want out, out of what? I'm not sure. And so they just, it gets all conflated versus saying like, hey, I want a third party sale. And these are kind of the attributes with a third party sale. Yeah, I mean, another popular solution, if you just wanted to uh, uh, monetize and, and uh is do an equity recapitalization, you know, equity recaps. That's a private equity deal where 
where you generally you, you sell like 55% or 60% of your company to a private equity fund. And then you keep, you know, the 40%, you stay on a CEO and then get a second bite at the apple later on, a few years down the road. The idea is the private equity firm is going to help you increase the value of your company during that time. And then, you know, when you sell your remaining 40%, you know, you'll, uh, you'll actually make more off of that second sale than you did, did off the first one. So that's an equity recapitalization. So, you know, that's a way to do it, to monetize it without actually leaving. Um, and yeah, the, like you said, the ESOP is another way people, uh, people do that but uh yeah exit strategies as a as a whole um you now it's interesting that uh so you, traditionally your um uh, your best bet was to sell to uh you sell your business to a public company that was in a strategic sale that was what would get you the highest price then after that you know sell to another private company that would get you a little bit less and then like third was a financial sale, like to a mm-hmm. private equity firm or something. That was like, that was, that was number three, you know, <laughs> way, way, way down the list. Cause you get your best prices, public company, private company, then private equity. Well, now that's flipped. Well, I was um, just going to say that is not what, that's not what I see. <laughs> yeah. So, so now because private equity firms are just grotesquely overpaying for companies because, <laughs> because of the comp- competition, your best bet right now is selling to a private, uh, you know, a, a private equity fund. Um, and, uh, and, you know, then probably a, a public company to a public company, then to a, to a private private company. But yeah, it used to be that the, you know, the private equity deals were the ones, you know, the, they were the, they were the people with the sharpest pencils who were trying to like, you know, <laughs> wring every possible dollar out of you and, and pay the least. And, and now they're being super generous because, you know, they have a lot of dry powder again yeah. and uh, have to get these dollars invested. So right now private equity is the best, you know, other thing that's interesting um, just on along those lines mm-hmm. is we always ask this every year in the, in the survey is if you could qualify for doing an IPO or selling to a private equity fund, uh, which would you, which would you do? Um, and it's, uh, and let's say it's always, it's always been the, the case that people have chosen since we started, started the survey, uh, private equity over IPO. Um, and so the, uh, the, so and, and let me go up to the. Yeah, yeah, go for it. It. Is, I'm, I'm, I'm on the edge of my seat, waiting for your, <laughs> waiting for your answer too. Okay, so this year I'm going to tell you the, uh, you know, the the numbers for that. So, uh, 56% uh, picked pri- uh, of owners picked private equity over IPO. 17%. Oh, so basically, 56% said they'd go private equity. 17% said that he'd go IPO. Now that's that's a real change from like you know, from historically where IPO was always the brass ring that everyone was wow. reaching for yeah. and such. And, and so, and now they just look at private equity as okay, you can, you can get really rich off a private equity deal uh, <laughs> without all the hassle of being a public company. Yeah. Isn't that, it's, it's so crazy watching these, these shifts happen and like, and that's right. And I think so much the, like the, the complete paradigm has shifted since 2020 when all the money got pumped in and all the, I mean, there's just so much stuff happening and the volatility. It's, I mean, it's, it's things change from day to day. And, but I think like, what, what can we take out of all this? I, I think like you, some of your descriptions of like, Hey, if your cost of capital, if your business is growing higher than your cost of capital, you're winning. If it's not, you're not. And like, and it's about, I think Craig, like for myself, from thinking about myself a decade ago, the people listening is like, what can I control? And then what do I do about it? 
that's what we're trying to get to. And so like, what, when you, th- I don't know if there's anything, if there's even a question in there, it's more of just like you, there's so much that we've talked about, but like, there's so many actionable things to do about it, but it's even just keeping people pointed in the right direction. So when you guys walk through your, walk through the, the survey methodology, cause I, not only should everybody participate next year, but then also like what you're just launching the, the 2020, is it 2021 one that you're launching? Or is it the 2022? So we already, we finished the survey for 2022 now, and we're just compiling the report and that'll be out in uh, in a, within a couple of weeks, um, hopefully a little bit earlier than that. Uh, So that's the 2022. We've done the 2022 survey. We're doing the 2022 report. Yeah. The way it works is, uh, you know, for, and, and essentially what we've done over the years, we've built up these, these survey panels and, and uh, always looking for new people to, to, to join in. The, uh, so that's uh, so very important for people to do that. Uh, and then, you know, we put them out there right now, um, essentially from 2021 all the way back uh, through history, those reports are, are free. And, you know, there's a, there's a link to them. If you go to privatecap.org, um, all one word, privatecap.org, uh, uh, then you have access to all the reports. So the 2021 and before, so it's always the current year we charge for, <laughs> and I uh, started doing that a couple of years ago, um, just because we we, we keep lost the funding our, going. <laughs> yeah, we lost our internal funding, um, and but uh, so the current one you have to pay for current year, but all the previous ones are free for download. Uh, so yeah, just go to private. It's a nominal. It's a nominal fee too. It's like a little bit over a hundred bucks or something like that. Yeah, this the, year it's one hundred twenty-five for the two thousand twenty-two. And we'll put so, the links in in the show notes for everybody because I think that the goal is to use this directionally to say, Hey, like, what does it mean? What does it mean to the listeners? Right. And I think it's just a great source of data that you can't just pull up the TV and see a bunch of information about private markets. <laughs> it just doesn't exist. Yeah. It's, it's really opaque that whole area. I mean, that's why every finance textbook you read in, in an MBA program or uh, what have you, it's all going to be talking about public company valuation. Um, and why is that? Even though that, um, the, the number of private companies dwarfs the number of public companies mm-hmm. yet uh, um, it's because of data. You just don't, uh, the public companies have data so that, that therefore every, all academic stuff uh, really defaults to public companies uh, because availability of data. And so private companies is a lot harder. So hopefully we are making that easier mm-hmm. uh, by providing uh, you know, data about pri- private companies. Craig, this has been an absolute blast and I appreciate how how simple you've brought all this information to everybody. Um, two questions I'd like to ask as we wrap up. Um, the first one is what the word intentional means to you because it's the name of the show and I think there's a lot of meat behind everybody's uh, different ways that they define it, but what does the word intentional mean for you? It means instead of just going for it and hoping for the best, actually having a plan. <laughs> <laughs> again, you just you just drop the drop the simple bomb again. I love it. That's seriously amazing. And then you've already uh, the second question is where do people get in touch with you? The reports you got you said it again, but um, any any main areas you'd like people to go? Uh, sure. I mean, my email address is Craig at, pep, at Pepperdine edu. Uh, on LinkedIn, my uh, uh, my. Um, handle is Craig Everett, all one word. Let's see. And on, uh, on Twitter, it's Craig underscore Everett. 
I thought you were going to bust out TikTok or Snapchat. No, I'm just <laughs> no. Yeah, I was, I, was, I was doing some TikTok uh, last year, just doing like snippets, uh, you know, talking points from the report and the things that I could do in under a minute. Oh, cool. And uh, so I, and probably once this report comes out, I'll, I'll do a little bit of TikTok. Um, That's awesome. Probably, probably not you're you're above me, dance. man. No, no dancing. Uh, you know, <laughs> no I'm, cooking. I'm, no cooking. I may involve my dog in it somehow, you know, because that seems to be popular. But <laughs> I was, I have this vision of Craig cooking and talking about whack. <laughs> uh, Craig, thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been a blast. Well, thank you, Ryan. If you are still listening, <laughs> then you have a lot of endurance for financial pain. No, I'm just kidding. I, I hope you enjoyed that. I hope you were able to, to pull some very actionable gold nuggets out of it. You don't have to understand all this. This is just about demystifying how this stuff works. I highly recommend go checking out the intentional growth financial assessment that Pat and I created. You take the 22 questions. It's very simple. You just It'll probably take you five to 10 minutes. And on the results page, there's five videos where Pat and I walked through a case study of an actual business where we can show you this is what's possible and how you organize your financials to see it like an asset so you can see your distributions, the cash flow, and the future value of your business and how your actions today are getting you further away or closer towards your goals. And that we essentially help you see that there's a framework to actually see this in, in real time and into the future. Check it out at arcona.io. Otherwise, I will see everybody next week, and thanks for so much for tuning in.